I don't have time to teach someone humanity. If you can't see it from me just merely existing and being in the same space as you and breathing and not really having any impact on your quality of life, then I don't have time to teach you how to see me as a human. Like you go about your business ignoring me. I'd actually prefer that because you're less harm if you're not interacting with me than trying to teach you how to treat someone how you would like to be treated. Like if you genuinely want to be treated like shit, go about treating everyone like shit. But if you don't like being treated like shit, then don't treat everyone else like shit, irrespective of who they are. You are listening to the who hurt you podcast hosted by me sophie hagen i promise i will get a jingle eventually this might sound weird but i don't remember exactly where i first met matilda ibini i think it was in a venue in king's cross in london i vaguely remember a stage perhaps an audience several people on the stage was it a panel a quiz show Was I even on the stage or was I part of the audience? I do not remember the context at all, but I do remember thinking that Matilda was awesome. I interviewed her for my book Happy Fat and we did the whole interview over WhatsApp voice messages. I remember doing it whilst I was in Edinburgh and I just stood outside of a party half drunk listening to her messages thinking, shit, everything she has to say is just important. Matilda Ibini is an award-winning playwright, screenwriter and wheelchair user. She writes for stage, TV, film and audio. She got a master's in playwriting and screenwriting at uni after getting a scholarship from BAFTA and Warner Brothers. I mean, hello. And everything she says sounds like poetry. Please enjoy my interview with the wonderful Matilda Ibini. So I'm in my bedroom slash office because when you live in a one bed flat, um, you make you make the most of the space you have available. And um, I live in London and I'm supported by a team of carers, incredible carers. Um, but there's been a lot of flux and change this year as as with anyone, um, or rather this past 12 months, um, all, yes, due to the pandemic. Um, and yeah, it's been really hard. I think, I don't really know how else to put it. Like, yes, globally, but also community and family and friends. It's just been very, very difficult, um, Yeah, it's where I'm at. And I feel like because it's been so hard, my my mental health has taken a battering. Um, And I found, yeah, I found myself really like going over every decision I've made in my life. (laughs) Um, And thinking about how come this career, how come this way of being, this way of life, living, And what could I be doing differently that will help, I guess, lessen the impact of the pandemic and kind of also somewhat deteriorating health and um, my mental well-being? Yeah. Wow. The last part of that about thinking about, you know, what, what else can I do? That sounds quite positive, it, or is it not? Is it more based on like an anxiety or? Um, that's a good question. I think, I think probably comes from, because I've, what, yeah, since maybe halfway through the um, pandemic, I started having counselling again. And I think there's so much you cannot change. There's so much like, there's so many things out of my control that actually, my energy and time is better spent on, uh, I guess, thinking about things that I I do have little influence over or little impact over, or even just the way that I feel about things, that not shouldering the whole, um, not shouldering it all as if it's all of my doing. Um, so what are the little things that, in a way, what are the little things that I could be doing to be a bit, give myself a break, 
and be a bit kinder to myself that actually, yes, shit, I can't uh, change these things that are shit. And they may probably still be shit in six months time, but I don't have to be, I don't have to feel shit for six months. Um, yeah. <laughs> What's your relationship with control? Oh, it's, I'd say it's a complicated one. As someone who grew up with a health condition that meant I lost control from as early as age five, I was starting to lose control of my limbs that hadn't even fully finished growing. Um, it meant I felt, it meant the little things mean a lot more to me than most people in terms of, um, how I like things, how I like my food plated up, how I take my tea, like the littlest details. And it may sound like, oh, she's a bit pernickety, but actually it's because like, there's so much I, I can't control that the little things mean a lot more. Um, and so, and not everyone always understands that. Not everyone gets that. They're like, oh, just take things as they are. And you're like, well... I can't because there's so there's so much I don't control that most people have control over that the little things are a lot more important to me than people would realize. And when I say people, specifically non-disabled people. <laughs> when did, do you do you remember much from when you were five? Do you remember the the feelings you went through at the time? Yeah, it was just uh, kind of a build up of frustration because at first I thought everyone's like this. I just assumed this was some kind of phase that everyone walks the way I do. Everyone gets up from the floor the way I do. Everyone climbs the stairs with both hands and both feet like a spider until um, until I guess to some extent school and meeting other kids and I couldn't do what they could do and that made me realize okay this isn't something everyone goes through then I am a little bit different in that way um but I remember when wanting to partake so my brain wants to partake in all these kid things but my body doesn't comply and so a lot of the time I think that's what started a lot of this kind of internal beating myself up about it that why can't I do why can't you just do that thing like and sometimes especially because it's a condition that took many many years to deteriorate so it meant why can't I do that thing anymore that I used to be able to do a year ago this was easy this was nothing I didn't even used to think about doing this when I used to do it and now it's hard I'm not doing it well I'm not um good at it anymore to the point of I can no longer do this anymore um and just a lot of frustration and confusion because also I have three non-disabled siblings so I see what I should be capable of physically and that I'm not meeting up even to their level and it's so common for children to blame themselves it's like built into kids to whatever yeah. happens it's just they oh, just absolutely. assume it's their own fault yeah, because we're mirroring ourselves off of everyone around us. And if you're not like them, there must be something wrong with you or what have you. And I also grew up in a very, very Christian religious household. So, I mean, this is only from personal experience. I can't talk for Christians and what have you. And I'm not a practicing Christian anymore, but there's a lot of guilt. Like every action is a sin that you must repent for. So... I just felt like I was just this massive walking sin that couldn't do anything right. Am I, and this is, this is probably the point where I'm going to say something that is so wrong, but am I wrong to think that there is a very ableist, uh, let me try and say this in the, not the worst way. There's an, <laughs> there's a typically sometimes there's an ableist aspect of Christianity, and I base this on the culture, not necessarily the Bible. I've not read it, I don't know, but I feel like there's a lot of you know, you will be healed through faith. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Because, and I explored this in a, in the play that I wrote um, last year, little or the year before rather, Little Miss Burden, about um, that 
uh, yes, I think personally, in my experience, yes, I've experienced a lot of ableism as a result of attending Catholic school. And, you know, any, everything from being in an RE class and being told that uh, dis- disability, disabled people, sick people um, are a punishment from God, that the person hasn't repented for their sins, so they're being punished, or disabled children are punishments of their parents' sins or ancestors' sins. And hearing that as a 12 year old kid in class and like feeling my face go hot, feeling my heart rate start to go quick, I was like, firstly, I was like, what the fuck have I done that I don't remember? Or what the fuck have my parents done that they don't remember, have not told me about? Um, And it took years, years of therapy and counseling and um, distancing myself from Christianity to be able to have the space to like really develop a self-worth and a sense of um a sense of just self um where I wasn't where me solely existing wasn't wrong because churches and pastors and priests and all these um all in the hopes of quote-unquote being cured and being healed had done such a Uh, had such a negative and damaging effect on my sense of self and confidence and my mental health that like yeah I yeah that I'm still working through even till today like almost 20 years on from from being in school and stuff like that and um yeah still trying to unlearn a lot of unhelpful narratives that that I was brought up to believe about this is what it is to be a disabled person um and even and having to have those uncomfortable conversations with my mum who you know god bless her she's still a Christian and I don't blame her for it and I don't try and she doesn't try to convert me and I don't try to convert her and but I could I can I can now understand as an adult what she was going through as a single mom with a kid with a condition that for a long time didn't even have a name it was just like it's a set of symptoms um and wasn't even sure if I would live till you know 18 to still to see certain kind of social milestones so I can understand the urgency and the desperation in going to all these churches and meeting with all these people who were uh, kind of feeding all this kind of false hope about you've got to do this or repent for this or pray or what have you to to for the sickness to disappear and lo and behold, like 20 years later, it's not, it's gotten worse, but I'm still here. Like Matilda's still here. Um, so, yeah. It's such a a big moment. And I think that, I think everyone has the moment of when you have to realize that your parents are human. Yes. And that they, they, like, and I don't think anyone's parent, I don't think anyone has parents that didn't fuck up in some way. And then it's just about the spectrum of which, how badly they fucked up. Yeah. And it's the having to, having to see them with empathy, mm. but also allowing yourself to be a bit angry, but then also working towards forgiving. And it's such a balance. Yeah. Like my sister said something really profound, well, not profound, but just like a reminder to me. She was like, I get, and she, like my non, my younger sister, she's like, I get that. I'm I'm I've I'm a sibling to a disabled person but that doesn't mean I will ever understand what that's like like as much as I've seen so much and grown up with you as having you know having an older sibling who has a disability I still like I've seen so much but I still won't ever know what that's like and having to kind of to some extent a little bit turn around to my mum and say the same thing that I get that you literally birthed me and carried me for nine months and trust me I'm not ungrateful trust um but um I live with this not you and like you know being called a sin or being told I'll be healed is telling me every day that I'm broken and and some days I don't feel broken um so it was kind of yeah just yeah let's seeing seeing how flawed our parents are and that they were once young and naive and um but also the great thing which I'm very grateful for the for the kind of mum that I have is seeing someone also grow and learn learn from their mistakes that actually okay yeah I won't say that kind of stuff around you anymore and things like that acknowledge that that can have an effect on the way you feel about yourself and see yourself and she only wants what's best for me so yeah yeah parents are parents are 
they're humans. They're it's humans. wild. Like I have friends who have kids <laughs> and when they sort of jokingly talk about things that they accidentally did or accidentally said that they, and you know, we're joking, oh, he'll need therapy someday. But <laughs> if I think about my mother having had to have those conversations with someone when I was four years old, I'd be furious now. I'd be like, oh, you're joking about how I need a therapy? <laughs> Do you have any idea how expensive it is? exactly (laughs) god when did you when did you start um seeing a therapist so the first therapist I ever saw was in 2011 and so I would have been I just started uni so I would have been either 18 no 19 I think yeah 19 and that was the first time someone had ever asked me um what living with my condition was like not what my disability is or what's wrong with me but Mm -hmm. what living with it was like and I remember the first session and I just like at least for the first couple sessions were just me crying for 40 45 minutes of the 50 minutes and then uh, being very patient and be like we're gonna try again next week (laughs) (laughs) to get some words out is that I mean I I, I wonder about I I feel uh, I can see how easy it is for for like us non-disabled people to to not understand like to to not wanting to be like too careful because yeah. that's condescending but also not wanting to be offensive mm. and I like none of these things are your issue like this is all this is all all on us to figure out but is there a and again not your emotional label to do but if you happen to have some kind of like just don't be a dick kind of advice yeah I mean if your feelings or thoughts about disability are negative please keep them to yourself that's what that's my first like basis because I remember very vividly being in an English class in school where there was a character in the book that becomes disabled I cannot remember what the book was called and all I remember of that lesson was hearing the teacher say well if I ever became disabled I'd kill myself I'd never want to be a burden on my family and I must have been about 14 then 14 15 um and every I just remember everyone's eyes looking at me because everyone remembered oh yeah Matilda's in the room and I was like again feeling my face go hot and my heart race and me trying not to show that I was and it's just like yeah if you're if your feelings and thoughts about disability are negative I just say keep your mouth shut like don't it's better that you don't say anything um because (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I I find what I find so strange um is like okay I get it like we're all brainwashed into believing some awful things about groups of people and groups of society and all that kind of stuff and I just feel like and maybe at this age because I'm a little bit more cynical than I used to be but um I just find like I don't have time to teach someone humanity like if you can't see it from me just merely existing and being in the same space as you and breathing and not really having any impact on your quality of life then I don't have time to teach you how to see me as a human like you go about your business ignoring me I'd actually prefer that because you're less harm if you're not uh if you're not interacting with me um then trying to teach you how to treat someone how you would like to be treated like if you genuinely want to be treated like shit and go about treating everyone like shit but if you don't like being treated like shit then don't treat everyone else like shit irrespective of who they are the bar is so low isn't it yeah yeah all you need to do is like not give me horrific abuse yeah and people are still like, oh, but I don't know. It's kind of hard. <laughs> like, and once every couple of years, you'll hear a study come out about, and I, I don't really know who they're surveying, but they'll be like, 90% of Britons um, aren't comfortable talking to disabled people, or uh, 65% of Britons w- um, wouldn't hire a disabled person, or 70% of Britons wouldn't, um, what was it? 
wouldn't date a disabled person and I'm like would disabled people date you is the question I don't think you're you're not asking the right people would disabled people date you um and I'm just like wow because we're still treating disabled people as some kind of separate category to humans um it's it's wild it's wild I've had a lot of time to think in this pandemic you've really reached some conclusions (laughs) I like to imagine you on tinder just going no 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 Sophie am I even on tinder (laughs) listen I had a minor breakdown last night I say minor, it was a major breakdown. And I, for the first time in maybe five years, I downloaded a dating app. And then, and I was like crying whilst picking photos of me looking hot. <laughs> I was like, this is a low point. And, but then it asked where I lived. And I was like, well, I'm not going to tell people where I live. Like, excuse me. I don't want people to know where I live. So then I just deleted the whole app. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, I'd rather be alone. <laughs> it's the worst it is I'm like (laughs) me and yeah 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 I was about to say something I was like no I'm not gonna say it (laughs) you sure come on um no no it's cool it's cool (laughs) okay I'm just gonna try and not be nosy about this okay have you, did you always, were you always creative? Were you always a writer? Um, yeah, yes, to some extent. I had many um, career ambition phases where there was the baking phase, there was the going, definitely going to be an astronaut phase, um, there was the uh, very brief stint um in thinking about wanting to go to medicine until um, I met with a not so nice doctor and I just thought, nah, <laughs> this is like, nah, it's not for me. <laughs> um, and, um, but yeah, sorry. Yes. The question, yeah, I've, to some extent, I've always had like, I used to keep journals many, many years ago, weren't very good. Like, I, w- I was very much like I wouldn't talk about like how my day went I talk about how I wish it went so it's like I'd write stuff that didn't happen basically <laughs> um and what we now call fan fiction I used oh. to write a lot of Scooby-Doo like I was obsessed Scooby-Doo Doo fan fiction <laughs> and I just kind of assigned real people that I knew as characters from Scooby-Doo so I was shaggy um because that's is that? Is that, best friend. Is, best friend is that the 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 green shirt yeah yeah okay, tall yes. gangly one yeah yes that one yeah <laughs> so I was shaggy and I'd assigned uh one of my favorite primary school teachers as Freddie because my primary school teacher could ride a motorcycle and Freddie could drive and those things are the same in my head <laughs> How old were you? I would have been, this was a while. I want to say I stopped like when I started secondary school. So from like maybe six or seven to about 12. Okay. Okay. I was like solidly committed. I was finishing episodes of, of Scooby-Doo, then writing my own episodes. (laughs) Um, any opportunity for like uh, free writing in school would always be Scooby-Doo themed Um, yeah I was what is it about Scooby-Doo what what's the appeal I think there's something about like the detectiveness of it like they're going to find out who's done this crime who's done this bad you know bad thing or like event or whatever there was also at the heart of it a friendship a really loving friendship that like no man gets left behind they always came back if one of the members were missing um and also just adventure no adventure is ever the same like some of the episodes now that I think about as an adult huge plot holes didn't make any sense logically not sound but as a child I was here for it (laughs) I've never heard of Scooby-Doo fan. I've heard about every other, like, I know there's Tetris fan fiction. Wow. I've yeah. never 
Wow. It's like, oh, the, the long thing meets the square, meets the, <laughs> that weird six-sack one. <laughs> I thought that was wild. <laughs> did you, so when you said that you wrote things that didn't happen, did you also have daydreams? Vividly, yes. Mm. Vivid daydreams to the point where it did become a problem in secondary school because um, my books would just be empty but I also should caveat that I was hugely bullied in secondary school like disgustingly so I don't know how I stayed at the school like that still baffles me um and I do remember one summer me and my mum trying to find another school to go to but it just didn't work out they were too far away and my mum my mum was a single mum so trying to drive me there and get to work it would have just been yeah it would have been really really difficult um so I ended up staying but um so I so in order like I guess at that age in order to get away from all the bullying and just not feeling like I fitted in I would daydream vividly where I just like so at first it felt like something I could control and do to while away time Mm -hmm. but then sometimes I'd walk into a classroom sit down daydream and it'd be and I'd just hear the pips to say the class is over and I would have I wouldn't have heard anything there'd be nothing in my book I wouldn't have gotten down the homework and so when it came to like parents evening they were like not only is Matilda too quiet she's not taking anything in like we're not seeing like I I just wasn't learning (laughs) because um the bullying was pushing me to daydream even harder and harder and now that I think about it a couple years ago a counselor did suggest like oh do you think you were dissociating maybe and I was like nah no, those are daydreams. Um, until she was like, were you always in control? Like, could you just come out of it when you wanted? I was like, oh, yeah, no. So I would just lose hours. I would lose entire lessons. And imagine this happening for months. And I wasn't, you know, um, when I did the homework, I wouldn't even understand what it was because it's like I'd not even been taught it. Um, because being physically in school and for a, for a long while being the only, I'd say, visibly disabled student um, was really lonely and really difficult. And um, and have it being forced to come to this place that makes you feel like shit is at times can feel like torture. Like, why are people, se- you know, my mom and teachers and whatever, why am I being sent to this place where people are literally like telling me to go kill myself like um so yeah I daydreamed hard and a lot (laughs) and I and to some extent I still do now as an adult but it's less it's less um intense I'd say I had a similar conversation (laughs) with my therapist because I was sort of bragging about having had a really good imagination as a child. I was like, oh yeah, I kept daydreaming all the time. And my therapist, who's German and very matter of fact, he was like, oh yes, that is a, a sim- symptom of severe trauma. I was like, no, I was just like super creative. And she was like, no, you were traumatized. I was like, oh God. Yeah. So which is why my diaries never made sense because I was never talking about what actually happened. I was like, this is what I wish happened. And it was usually very out there and included Scooby-Doo and other worlds. So like. <laughs> it's amazing. You So you went full on. I mean, because I remember I always needed it. I mean, I'm not going to say reality, but it had to make like, like it would still be me marrying Westlife, but I would have like a reasonable way there, you know, <laughs> It wouldn't be like we met on a different planet. It would be, you know, well, how could this happen? Well, you know, they could spot me in a crowd, <laughs> then like, lift me onto the stage, which is easy because in my daydream, I'm thin <laughs> and also older because they probably wouldn't do it when I'm 12. <laughs> so I, ha- I had to have like a logic way of this to happen because if it was in any way supernatural or anything like that, I'd go, no, no, that would never happen. (laughs) I like there's a logic to your daydreams. Mine had no logic whatsoever. Everything from alien invasions to um, having to find some kind of uh, important totem or um, I remember one vivid dream. Oh, and I used the story as the basis of my dissertation 
that I did at uni and it was a story that I'd made when I was like 14, 15, which is that I I once came to school and everybody was blind and I had to guide people to classes and things like that. Like it was such a vivid dream because I was exhausted by the end of the dream. Um, But yeah, every single person had lost their sight and didn't know why or how everyone in the school except me <laughs> I mean that's a that's a therapist's dream isn't it you know <laughs> oh so they can't see you that way they can't bully you or pick on you or blah 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 and yeah it's, it was wild it was wild yeah my imagination had no really no like limits to some extent which is a blessing and a curse <laughs> so is it Okay, let me see how I can phrase this question. So is it, because this all started with me asking you if you'd always been a a writer. So was it that you had so many daydreams that you had to get them out somewhere or you had so many thoughts? Or was it, and then you became a writer from that? Or was it the other way around? That's a good question. I think, so we started with a Scooby-Doo fan fiction. There was a brief stint in poetry because I loved how you could say things without saying them explicitly it felt like trying to write in code and you'd leave it up to the reader to interpret however they wish um before yeah I think I think yeah I probably did have to get them out because they were taking up so much room like there were recurring characters there were recurring worlds um I wouldn't it'd be really hard to even concentrate and like watch a film or TV if all of that was still going on in my head. And if I'd written it down, I think I knew then it was safe that, oh, I put it in that book. So I don't need to have to hold it in my head all the time. And if I ever forget or like, how does that bit go? Or what do they normally do? I know it's in, I've written it down somewhere kind of thing. So I think, yeah, there was a kind of compulsion to get it out of my head to allow new stories allow new information at times allow actual school learning to happen because I if I didn't write it yeah I would I'd still just be lost in all of there and not really present yeah which I still find quite hard to do today as an adult is to be present in the moment hard same (laughs) so so much same so much it's so that's what I was thinking. I, I, what happens when you are present? I mean, that is literally a question my therapist asks me. Is we so I know this might be too <laughs> too digging, um, because I I, know, I think it's because your worlds sound so incredible and fantastic that part of me is like, well, why would you be present? The present is boring. Yeah, I know. Because they were fun. They were fun journeys. They were friends that I didn't have in real life. I was had plenty for in those worlds. And I was I wasn't asked to change. Like my disability was never seen as some kind of barrier or problem or hurdle or obstacle that needed to be overcome. It was just present and just didn't get in the way. So I was never asking anything unreal of myself but the places that I would go and the things that I would do and the people that I'd meet or other characters um, were very unreal and out of, yeah, probably inspired by people that I'd met and things, but were very much, yeah, of my own imagination. Um, and when you said about like, what does it mean to be present, which is something I feel like I'm still grappling with, but I can't remember who I, I think I remember once saying like being present means feeling everything, which is at times really overwhelming and intense because to be present is to feel the good stuff. It means to also feel the bad stuff. So I'm like, well, I don't want to feel, if I don't want to feel the bad stuff, then I can't feel the good stuff. And so like when there were like, so when I'd have like maybe career highs or achievements, I'd actively stop myself celebrating or acknowledging that this is a big thing. You've achieved something pretty big. Like this is amazing because if I allow myself to feel good, it means I have to allow myself to also feel shit. And I'm always running away from the shit. 
And also what I think people might not all understand is that it's not like the feelings you're feeling when you finally allow yourself to feel them. It's not just the feelings you feel right now. It is all of the feelings that you have never felt your entire life. So every second you daydreamed, there were bad and good feelings that were put away. Yes. (laughs) And when you open up now, they all just come can't oh. separate them yeah no. exactly you can't separate them so a lot of the time I'm I find myself playing down everything because I want to feel I, I'm not saying I don't want to feel but I want to feel in moderation because if I try and feel all the stuff man nobody <laughs> will hear from me for a month like <laughs> or several months even <laughs> um oh okay Oh, we can go so many different ways. Um, I have so much to ask you. So can I, okay, this, I remember when, when I chatted to you for, um, was it then? Yeah, I think it was when I chatted to you for um, Happy Fat, you mentioned, now I don't think I've said this word out loud yet, and I don't think I can pronounce it. I think I'm going to sound weird, but let's ignore that. Afrofuturism? Yes. Was that, that was what you Yes, yeah. It's crossed my mind so many times since because I had no idea what it was. Yeah. So, like, it's an American term that, and I'm probably really bad at defining it, but um, an American term used to define uh, kind of like the, well, specifically the Black experience in America, actually, um, through kind of a sci-fi lens, but that also... Um, allowed a kind of reclamation of uh, traditional and long forgotten kind of African narratives as well and African aesthetic Um, and so this kind of hybrid of the now and the then even though we know that the then has been highly um, or has been highly distorted due to colonialism and so when I discovered that the term Afrofuturism was through um, this article about uh, that described I couldn't understand why I was so drawn to not just Janelle Monet's music but her music videos there was something about them that like really spoke to those daydreams that I would used to have um and so when I discovered this term Afrofuturism I was like oh my god like my it felt like my brain at the time imagined in a quite Afrofuturist way that it was it was beyond just the oh, because black people don't get to see themselves in mainstream media, we just create our own version. It was beyond that. It was kind of a like, um, a kind of tool to some extent to try and find the self, like what is the the closest essence of self. Um, And at the time when I discovered that term, I was going through my own kind of personal identity and like, what did it mean to be British Nigerian or Nigerian British or what have you and like to go to Nigeria but be told because you speak English you're you're British or not really Nigerian but then to be black in the UK is to always be asked where you're from from and so that kind of like that hyphenated experience I was really intrigued by um uh just just my own personal intrigue and that and then that then filtered into my work um so, but I still feel like it's not, it's, it's, I feel like it's a stepping stone, but it's not Afrofuturism because like when we last spoke, so much has happened that it doesn't feel like it's the all encompassing thing, but rather a tool that I can go to or look to for influence um, when I'm trying to tell these stories of being, of be of being and existing um, in these very differing, sometimes opposing cultures—the culture of the colonized and the colonizer—like that is interwovenly um, part of my existence. I can't escape that, um, and that will always influence whatever I'm writing, even if it's not explicitly about being British Nigerian. That will always still have find its way into my work. Um, yeah in a kind of long rambly way <laughs> you listen you are the only person I know that never rambles I was just <laughs> thinking about every everything you ever say is so well phrased and so articulate and so like I've never heard you ramble uh, I know we've not spoken a lot but that's the like I remember writing out what you'd said um uh, when we had the interview for the book 
And I was like, I could just publish this as you had <laughs> like, what's it called? Phonetically? No, that's not the word, but just written down. Like I could just, oh, anyways, <laughs> you'd never ramble. Uh, okay. I'm going to say something really wanky. Is there a, is there a, is there a cor- correlation between you um, like fleeing the trauma in your everyday life by going into these uh, sci-fi worlds in your head and then what sounds like it's sort of the, the the black community specifically in America and the US collectively creating this sci-fi world of Afro, Afrofuturism to get away from the trauma in there. Did you know what I mean? Is there a, Ooh, yeah, is it sort of the same mean. thing, but as a collective yeah. instead of as an individual? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Like creating something to be able to like process or yeah, escape or process or um, even just like a safe haven from real trauma. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I couldn't say it was a black thing, but maybe it's like a thing humans do like when when you feel persecuted or yeah or in yeah a different a different kind of flight or flight that's not always spoken about because or flight is somewhat physical that you either physically remove yourself from a situation and 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 go away or you st- you stay put but sometimes the staying put you don't always have a choice in like you can't actually leave anyway I couldn't leave school I couldn't um leave traumatic situations so my to some extent my mind would instead um and I think I think for me it was just finding when I discovered what got me really excited up about discovering the term Afrofuturism was realizing I'm not alone in that in doing that that oh this is a thing that lots of people do like the I found doing that by daydreaming and writing but other people do that by painting or creating any kind of work of art or exploring art or what have you or going to art as some kind of um, respite from the daily grind of existing and trauma and all that all the things that come with it Um, so I think yeah finding just something that housed like anytime you can like name something it makes it feel less it makes it feel a bit more real and more tangible than something that's just kind of floating above because like when you think of daydreams it's like people like oh is that something you do when you're asleep or half asleep or like what exactly and it's like no it's it's for me at least at that age yeah it was rewriting the things that were happening to me in my own head and making them less traumatic and more fun and much more safe in a way that didn't have to that didn't compromise me um that didn't say oh the way to get through this is to be less you is to turn yourself down is to be quieter and smaller and less colorful actually I was able to preserve a lot of myself in those daydreams so what how does this change in your mind from when you are the person experiencing the daydreams to when you are the person writing it down to you, your creation being shown to an audience who are now seeing this thing you imagined. How does that feel? Yeah, that was scary because one, one, I didn't even know writing was a career. I didn't know it was something you could do. I remember very uh, vividly in class when someone asked if Shakespeare's still alive, like, like, I didn't know writing was a thing like you just kind of at that age you just assumed books just appeared out of nowhere like yeah I didn't realize like oh someone sat down and wrote that and what I watched or was reading someone actually wrote that like you just assumed things just existed um so I think it was learning that was the biggest turning point was when realizing that you could make a career out of that that people like oh people want to oh yeah of course I've read books all those books I've read was written by someone and it wasn't the same person like so it was realizing like so all those times I was writing my own Scooby-Doo I could have just written my own show like it didn't have to be based on 
Scooby-Doo and those characters and those situations. So it was that knowledge was very uh, unlocked a lot. Um, and I can't pinpoint when I learned that. I'm sure someone must have told me, like, really broke it down that, like, no, so someone writes this and then uh, they hand it. to So it's, it becomes a script and then you hand it to a director and then they find actors and assign characters to them. And then they practice and they have to keep practicing really, really hard and a lot, a lot of times before they can then perform it. And you're like, oh, wow. One, that sounds like a lot of work. But two, I feel like I might be able to do that. um yeah so the first time that it happens it's really scary but also the first time that it happens it's most likely like it's really shit like what you write is not going to be good because you're just starting out and I do remember being really disappointed like not and I didn't blame the actors or the director I was just like this just isn't good like it's it it just and it's because I I'm not there yet I, there's so much I still have to learn about how you tell stories in a way where you hand over a script to someone because that's very different from writing a book and working on a manuscript for years and years and handing it to an editor or whatever like that the processes could not be more different and so um yeah I was just like I don't want to give up on this because there's something really fun like I saw my mum as a single mum do jobs that she absolutely hated and did it purely for the money for me and my siblings and she let us know like it's like I have to go to that job like we we had like nicknames for the for the jobs that she had to go to and the ones that she specifically the ones she didn't like and like okay mum like just count us only like eight hours and then you're back like (laughs) so um I just remember very clearly thinking if i when I do ever grow up, like, I would love a job that was just fun, that I didn't have to do it just for the money or that it made me miserable or had to bite the bullet and just go in and do it. But actually, I want to find something that I actually enjoy doing. Um, and I was very fortunate to have found this world, this not just theatre, but storytelling that you get to share with people. How does that um relate to your relationship with control because I can like the thought of giving something you've written to someone else to do are you good at that I think I would well I know for a fact that I I'm not sure I would be able to handle it (laughs) I wouldn't say with 10 years now that I've been writing in theatre I feel like I've gotten better at doing that but I was much much worse in the beginning like that's not how you sing it. Don't you see the full stop? The full stop for a reason, because that's where the sentence ends. Like, <laughs> I was far more controlling in the early years. And you, it's, 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 a, it's a kind of experiment. You, le- you kind of learn to let go as you get on and you realise what works in letting go is that you're trusting your collaborators. So to some extent, you've got to know them. And yes, it's hard to get to know people for work but like because the the medium is so collaborative that I myself I'm not an actor I couldn't just write it and then just perform it myself so I know I'm going to need performers so I need to know what they're capable of but also I need to trust that that everyone working on whatever script or whatever that I've written wants the best for this like no one is jumped aboard to like yeah I'm gonna sabotage this bitch like no that's no one is like going to the ends of the earth to sabotage a play like usually everyone is on board because they believe in it so it's trusting in the process trusting that I've put enough hours into developing it and trying to make it as good as it can be but also um trusting in myself that like which is a big thing that I like, I'm going to be, I feel like a massive hypocrite saying this, but like, even when I do write shit stuff, trusting that I can still write better, that I know that, that I can't, you can't hold me to just one piece of work. That would be unrealistic and solely unfair (laughs) that actually, yes. Okay. That one worked, the next one might not, but the one after that could. So like trusting that I know that I can do better and will continue to always push myself and challenge myself and not um I don't feel like I have have ever been but not ever get complacent that I'm I'm too 
experience to learn. Nah, I'm always up for learning new stuff and working with new people and learning um, different ways of collaborating. Um, so trusting that I know that I can I can do better, and I've put I've I've put as much as work as I can put into something, and whether it succeeds or not, like I should still be happy that it even got made, that it even got seen. That sounds like it reminds me so much of how I feel about my work. So my question has to do with with that because yeah. my question would then be: Do you have the same ability to be so cool about it when it comes to not work, like working with like working with people but not with work, or trusting people, or being self critical in like a healthy way? Mm. Or is it just because it's work and it's different from your personal? Yeah, I think because it's work and it's slightly different. Um, yeah, but I th- I feel like to some extent I've somewhat been forced to uh, be more trusting of people because my condition forces me to be more reliant on others anyway. So actually I'm having to um, put my trust in people at times that I've not met too long Um for support or care or assistance and so then that forced to some extent forces me to like what you know the people that have been in my life the longest why wouldn't I then trust them or um yeah or or they wouldn't trust me kind of thing but um but I think the self-critical thing aside when it's not work yeah I'm still very highly critical of myself and that is something I'm working on and maybe will forever be working on because mental health there's no destination when it comes to mental health it's just all about the process like there's I'm never going to be like oh yeah I'm no longer depressed or anxious anymore it's just gone I woke up one day and it never came back like it's going to be something I constantly have to contend with and manage but um yeah I'm trying to learn to be kinder to myself in ways that I wasn't in the past. Yeah. Oh, this, I just want to ask you about everything all the time. <laughs> so, but before I ask you the last uh, question, let's, yes, let's make this the last one. Oh, there's so much. Um, what does that say? I mean, I hope I've answered them. Because you have, I'm you like, have. But okay. Every time you speak, there's 10 more things I want to ask you. <laughs> okay. Let's just quickly just pandemic you mentioned it in the beginning what what have you gone through this pandemic what you said it had been really difficult what has what's it been like yeah um I mean other than trying to keep myself and carers safe because I I'm I'm technically their employer um so uh my team shrank Uh, drastically and very quickly and for lots of different reasons Um, it just meant I had a or still have a much smaller team than I'm used to and that means um, having a not as routine care as I'd normally would because I'm working around different availabilities um, and we're not there's not as many people to cover as many shifts um, was the big one um, and that has then just had a knock-on effect on my ability to to like work. Like I remember at the very beginning of the pandemic, most of like everything that I'd had lined up for the year had just vanished and disappeared. And I was like, wow, that's like income that's just gone now. What do I do? Um, and where do I go? But there were so many um, very reactive um uh like hardship funds and grants and schemes that came up that I literally applied all of them I didn't care if I was eligible or not because I was like I'm out here with nobody and I've got to be able to pay at least part of my care um and so there was that there was also um oh that the the biggie was the, the coronavirus bill which wasn't even really on my radar it was put on my radar because someone had sent it to me because um they'd said like in a claw in there was like a some clause in in the coronavirus bill that 
council local authorities were given essentially like given permission to cut down care packages or the hours in care packages um if they if they needed to essentially like if they needed to be able to try and support more people or whatever and they were like oh but you you can cut it so long as it doesn't cause any kind of severe neglect or um whatever and it's like trust me councils cut care packages out of neglect like neglect is not even on their radar they don't most uh most have had such massive cuts to their budgets that even some of their their ways of working you'd question the ethics right and you're and the government has now given permission for them to make further cuts in the pandemic when you'd think disabled people would need more support not less to set, keep themselves safe and alive and healthy um and that was wild and i was thinking would my council be would they be in touch as like of course they would of course they would they it, it, it'd be not on brand if they weren't in touch so there was just kind of the fear of having my care package cut in the middle of a pandemic and you know their logic would be well you're not going out so you don't need hours in the community and it's like but I'm still alive I still need support in fact I need more support because I've got to make sure the house is always clean and kind of uh sanitized and things like it was just yeah it was just wild um and it never really so when I so when some of my uh, carers had to leave um not really being able to recruit meant then trying to manage a smaller team um which then means like my days aren't as structured as they used to be um which can sometimes make trying to work or do anything difficult when it's like you know the care the care that they provide is just like is the basics that I need just to live let alone to work and stuff um so that's that's been like just yeah it's just been hella stressful and there's been lots of like hiccups along the way and there's not really been much support from um yeah the council and um and also to some extent not really having a choice that I had to work like if I didn't if I if I was like okay because I've lost all this work let me go on benefits some of those benefits conf that have a uh, directly conflict with the support I get so it was either choosing do I have the benefits or and risk losing some of my support from my carers or do I go without the benefits and then just keep the carers and I went for the carers because I was like I need them more than I need the benefit because the benefit won't get me out of bed in the morning or make or get me dressed and up and ready and things like that um so it was being to some extent not having a choice in not working <laughs> in a pandemic <laughs> um, because this is not normal times. And when you're, when your quote unquote, like job is, when your job is really like, actually not just specifically writing, everyone's job is linked to their mental health, but at times when your job is creative and you need this, the mental space and capacity to create it can be really hard if everything in your personal life feels like kind of a dumpster fire. Like where do you find the, how do you carve out space and time and just peace to be able to then work and create? Um, and I think I've also been struggling with that a hell of a lot. Do you think there's, uh, this is probably too optimistic considering the world and the government but do you think the fact that some of the long-term uh, consequences of the virus seem to be that people are, be are becoming disabled, do you think that could end up being meaning that there will be more support or that something will change for the better? Um probably not because there was already so many disabled people in the UK pre-COVID and historically the government and the UK have just failed them time and time again mm. like I don't think and I want to be careful how I say this I don't think it should take an, a, an able-bodied person or sorry rather a non-disabled person becoming disabled for them people to understand the barriers that disabled people face because by then it's too late to some extent um 
actually, I hope maybe moving forward now means that some of the kind of responsive or reactive support that the government, even though it's not much, has put in place, hopefully stays and then can be built upon in the future to make sure that actually everyone in society is included. Um, because what, to some extent, the pandemic has done is put, has given people like windows, not necessarily even understanding, but you've been able to see what people have been facing who had no choice but to be at home because the world excluded them. It wasn't a virus. Um so yeah i'm i'm hopeful in that way but like this government's track record has just been unless unless they're removed is when i could have hope because there isn't any hope with this current government um they don't care about they never cared about disabled people but they certainly don't care about um anyone that's not in their inner circles like that's more than evident and so, yeah, it's quite hard to have hope with them still in power. But someone, oh, what did, oh, I can't remember. Maybe it was one of my carers is sometimes when you're feeling quite powerless, instead of looking up to all the failings of the powers that be or institutions above, sometimes it's helpful to look around. Like if just just look around your immediate circles, your immediate communities. And that's sometimes where you can feel a bit more hopeful that people are making connections, reaching out, people are checking in on people, um, that there is more there is more support to be found in that. There's more hope to be found in the people around you than in the higher ups. Yeah, I this one of the, when I feel really hopeless. I was at a, a speaking event at, at one point and I was just saying out loud, oh, it's hopeless. <laughs> Nothing will ever get better because I'm real fun to be around. I was like, everything's the worst. And this woman just ran to me and she was like, I work for uh, change.org. So every single day I see petitions, you know, getting traction and changing laws. So she was like, there are things happening that you might not see and it's happening every single day and people are fighting and things are getting better and it's, it's possible. And I was like, okay, okay, good. <laughs> I just so I keep thinking about that, that obviously we're not going to be told about all the, yeah. all the great things that are happening. Um, yeah, true. And then you can feel a bit of hope, but then also not let that be, enough that you'll go oh well thank god I'm done like don't yeah. just do anything someone else is handling it on the internet exactly that we all have a role to play absolutely so I'm going to ask you the last question then I'm going to ask you to tell us all where we can find your stuff and follow you on social media and then if you have time I know I've run over because I have no to get a parcel and everything but if you have more time can I ask for some extra fun questions for the Patreon? Yeah, why yes. not? <laughs> Amazing. So before we do that, uh, the last question would be, how are you feeling now? We started about an hour ago. Yeah. And... It's been so lovely talking to you, Sophie. Like, yeah, you too. Um, yeah, I feel, I do feel hopeful. I have to be to some extent. Otherwise, I would leave this industry. Um <laughs> If I didn't believe change was possible, right, I would, yeah, I wouldn't be a writer because one of the biggest things that stories have taught me is that, like, um, one, like, your story or your perspective is just that. It's just one lens. There's so many different lenses on the same subject or the same topic or the same experience even at times or the same sequence of events that you're let someone's lens may not be as optimistic or from a helpful viewpoint but that their lens is not the definitive lens right and um with stories like most stories are about some kind of change because change is inevitable no matter how much you try and fight it no matter how much you dig your heels into the ground to stop it change will happen even when you don't want it to so I am 
at times very quietly and inwardly hopeful, but hopeful nonetheless, because stories tell me that like things just don't say the same. They can't. Um, yeah. So I'm feeling, feeling warm. <laughs> Glad. Well, thank you for doing this. Where can people find, I mean, I know you're, it's theater, so nothing is <laughs> happening at the moment, but where can people find your stuff? Um, you follow yeah. you to be informed uh, about future. I so I have a website that I've updated. Um, so you can find me on that on matildabinny.com. Um, I have a Twitter, but I'm on a Twitter break. I don't know when I'll be back or if I'll be back, but I'm on there at Astro Minx. Don't ask me why that title is. <laughs> that's the tag it's the tag just accept it and yeah those are probably the two main places you can find me yeah and are we we'll we'll just wait for the pandemic and then there'll be some some more place hopefully who knows if I'm honest but um I am very much in this kind of writing phase so I'm hoping in the next probably yeah year or two you might see something <laughs> but not anything right now which I'm kind of glad because yeah I've not been feeling the most creative of present but I have just been writing anyway like I'm, I'm trying not to judge it just like just put words on the page doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense <laughs> I, I envy your ability to do that <laughs> my brain is like no I don't think we're going to create anything for about a year now <laughs> fuck everything <laughs> I, but I write. I, 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 I do it in my actual dreams now. I have. I wow. dream. I dream jokes, and they're not good. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I also dream entire movies that feel so real that I oh. wake up and I think about it as if it's a movie I've seen. It's wow. Quiet. That's real, like lucid dreaming. Yeah. Like, Anxiety wow. medication. Highly recommend. <laughs> it really fucks with your brain. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for doing this. No, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. Isn't she great? And so are you. Please consider supporting my work by becoming a Patreon supporter on patreon.com forward slash Sophie Hagen. That's S-O-F-I-E-H-A-G-E-N, where you can, for just £5 a month, get lots of extra bits from the guests on this podcast you get access to a special Discord chat server where you can socialize with other listeners and me, and you get as many little extra discount codes and secrets and videos as I can possibly get away with handing to you. That is patreon.com forward slash Sophie Hagen. If you're still supporting the Made of Human Patreon, note that there will no longer be posted anything other than the full episodes there. If you want the extra bits, you have to switch over to the Sophie Hagen one. Sorry about the inconvenience there. I would also absolutely love a five-star review on Apple Podcast, but I know you're busy and life is probably a lot right now. So just thank you for listening, thank you to Matilda for being a great guest, and thank you to Dave Pickering for editing the episode. Speak to you all soon. Bye! <laughs>